0: Frank Buckley Interviews is presented by the Mercedes-Benz dealers of Southern California.
1: Hey there, it's Frank Buckley. Today we've got a comedy writer and now a showrunner who's getting great reviews for a reboot of a TV show that many of us grew up with. Here's part of the theme song to the original show that ran from 1975 to 1984. To go and have a ball. Recognize that music? It's the theme song, This Is It, written by Jeff and Nancy Barry for the show, One Day at a Time. It was a Norman Lear-developed sitcom about a divorced mom trying to raise two teenage daughters. It starred Bonnie Franklin as the mom and Valerie Bertinelli and Mackenzie Phillips as the daughters. The new version of the show is on Netflix, and here's what the trade paper Variety said in its review. Quote, the new show, which updates the original's single mom plotline to follow a Cuban-American family in Los Angeles, is fresh, fresh funny and smart, unquote. And the new show got a new theme song. It's the same this is it, but with a Latin beat from Gloria Estefan and her producer husband Emilio. This is it. One of the two showrunners on this new version of One Day at a Time is my guest today. Her name is Gloria Calderon Kellett. She's an actress, a playwright, a comedy writer, and now a showrunner. She's also a Cuban American, a wife, and a mother. What's it like to take on a project with the legend Norman Lear looking over your shoulder? And what's it like to be a Latina in the often all white male writer's room? What's it like to do a show for Netflix? Gloria answers all of those questions and more on this edition of Frank Buckley Interviews. I hope you enjoy it. One day at a time. One day at a time. One day at a time. Uh, Gloria, welcome. I'm looking forward to talking to you about One Day at a Time, of course, uh, but also about what it means to be a showrunner, what it means to be a woman showrunner, to be a Cuban-American and a Latina in Hollywood, among other things. But first, let's talk about this iconic TV show, From the 1970s that many of us uh, grew up watching one day at a time bonnie franklin is the single mom Mm -hmm. to teenagers of valerie bertinelli and mackenzie phillips who is your bonnie franklin and the other stars and one of the questions i'm sure you're asked over and over again is there a Schneider? <laughs>
0: <laughs> our Bonnie Franklin is Justina Machado, the uh, incredible Justina Machado. Yes, Chicago theater actress, and then she's been out here on many shows. ER, obviously, Six Feet Under. She's very famous for Queen of the South. She's on Jane the Virgin right now as well, and we are fortunate enough to have her as our Bonnie Franklin character, our Penelope Alvarez.
1: She's terrific. I've I've seen a couple of episodes, and it's it's really uh, wonderful, and it's a great reboot, as they call it. It's a a risky idea though to take on this kind of a project there's a love for it to begin with so risky and also maybe you've got a built-in audience but you could also have become the person the the writer who took the work of the legendary Norman Lear and made bad tv (laughs) thankfully you didn't um but oh man i'm so glad that that didn't happen but did that that must have weighed on you right of
0: course of course i mean he has such an incredible pedigree and uh and body of work and we only want we took very seriously uh him sort of knighting us daming me and mike royce my my producing partner and writing partner in this and we took it very seriously
1: yeah and and he was present He's an executive yes, producer.
0: Yes, Norman would come. Uh, he wasn't in the writer's room. Uh, he would come and visit us, but he would read every outline, read all the scripts, come to all of the run-throughs, warm up the audience for every audience taping that we he did. He was the warm-up oh, guy? Oh, yes. He would go up there and talk to them and give an inspirational speech, and people would just be so primed to sit and, and watch us. So it, it, we really have him to thank for that. It's such a amazing. thrill. That's
1: amazing. Yeah. Um, is he looking over your shoulder? Is he giving you like when he gives notes? How does what is it like to work with Norman? It's
0: great. Lee? He's very uh, curious and also very into the conversation. He likes the conversation. Yeah. So sometimes he would just want to talk through something, and then once we got to the other side of it, he goes, "Okay, good. I got it. Do it." Right. And so the the I think the debate and the conversation and the uh, us all being on the same page was was really where he stood out in being an executive producer. He was guiding and and was such a he's so feisty, such a fighter. Right. So he also wanted to make sure that we were talking about the real things, pushing us to dig even deeper. Yeah. It was great. It was great.
1: And 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 like a Norman Lear um sitcom, it has heart. And yes. and that's what I think comes through when when you watch the show, because let's face it, there's some sitcoms it's just, ha, ha ha, you know, it's it's a laugh track for the whole thing and then 22 minutes have passed and it's over. You've worked hard into it, I I imagine that's, by design
0: yes well it's very personal mike royce and i uh have put our families into this show you know it's it's largely loosely based on my mother and i and our relationship and the the teenagers are based on mike's kids loosely again but Mm -hmm. that's where we pull from so it's very personal to us and this style of writing is what mike and i both love writing however had we gone out and pitched this he and i and said well, we want people to cry every episode and laugh every episode. I think executives might have been like, "What?" Yeah. The moment you say like Norman Lear shows, they go, "Oh, okay, we get what you're trying oh, to that's do." Interesting. Right? So we needed we needed that. We needed Norman's uh, that special touch of what he had done in the 70s to explain what it was that we wanted to do. I see. And make people understand and then let us do it.
1: And it has this Latin flavor yes. uh, and you know uh, during the introduction i've 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 our listeners have heard the original um this is Song, it uh-huh. and and gloria estefan's uh, uh version um and, and that's also obviously by design and yes. you say it's it's your your family
0: yes yes well i'm cuban i'm cuban american my parents came here in 1962 during operation pedro pan and they made their life here not knowing any english and wow sending me to school and working three jobs and the whole thing, I mean, really American dream. My parents learned how to speak English watching television. So Mm. it's incredible to them that now their daughter is a writer for television. That's
1: a fantastic, (laughs) it's an American success story. It is,
0: it's really, I'm very fortunate. And were were you
1: in in the Miami area or were you here in California? We
0: we were in California. There were 14,000 Cuban kids came over during Pedro Pan, and the infrastructure in Miami was not set up to take that many people on for a large period of time. It was supposed to be for about six months while the government was getting Castro out of Cuba. Mm-hmm. And of course, that never came to fruition. Yeah. So uh, I think they said, well, let's start to, the churches really were the ones that were vital in helping to spread these Cuban kids around the country. Yeah. And both of my parents went to Portland, Oregon, actually. So there's actually a little conclave of uh, Cubans in Portland, so Oregon. So you
1: grew up in Portland? I did. And as a, as a Cuban-American with immigrant parents who are learning English, and you were how old?
0: I was born here
1: oh you were born here yes yes so you're born amidst this and my my mother's Japanese now I lived in Japan when I was two years old and so I, I I learned Japanese and English at the same time my father is Caucasian and did not speak Japanese and I remember many times where I would like you know we'd go to the a shop right a mechanics or something and my dad would be saying tell them this uh-huh. Tell them that. Did you have experiences like that? Oh yes,
0: up? oh yes. Well, I I also had the great uh, good fortune of having my grandparents pick me up from school, and I spent a lot of time with my grandparents because my parents were working. Hmm. That was also something. You know, my parents worked. It was work, work, work because they were going to send me to school. They were going. They sent me to private school. Uh, Catholic school which we cover on the show as well private Catholic school with those uniforms which I, st- I still love a crisp white collared shirt <laughs> I mean who doesn't right <laughs> I'm did, still very partial did you
1: wear uh, the proper Catholic school oh, dress oh yes and, but did you wear it properly or did you try to
0: I did try to mess with the hemline a little bit I'm not going to lie to you Frank
1: right <laughs> Um, we talked about the fact that you're taking on um, uh, social issues that affect many people today. You've really modernized this. The Bonnie uh, Franklin character, played now by Justine Machado, who is an A- Afghanistan war veteran or yes. Iraq- Afghanistan, yes, yes. and um, she's dealing with many of the things that that our veterans are dealing with today, uh, including her interaction with the Veterans Administration. That's correct. Uh, our veterans often have difficulty dealing with the VA. One of the outrages we've all watched in recent years is the, the wait times that they've had to to endure just, just to get work or to get seen. Appointments, right. Yeah, uh, and you have a scene that, that I'd like to share with our, our listeners um, in which Justina's uh, character, Penelope, is trying to call in and get someone on the phone at the VA. Come on. Pick up, Jolene. Pick up. Maybe you're peeing. That's okay. I have to pee, but I'm going to hold it. (laughs) Maybe you're grabbing your 4 o'clock snack away from your desk. I'm not here to judge. You do you at the vending machine, (sighs) boo-boo. Answer the damn phone, Jolene. Hello? Wait, who is this? Please be a man named Jolene. No, this is Tad. (laughs) But this is Jolene's extension, right?
0: No, I think they accidentally transferred you to an empty office.
1: Well, it's not empty now, because I'm standing here talking to you. But after I hang up and leave, it'll be empty again. I just want an appointment with a chiropractor. I'm Alvarez, 2294. Can you help me, Tad? Slow down. Let me see what we
0: have here. Alvarez 2294.
1: (laughs) Okay, so tell me about that scene. Where did it come from, and what were you trying to depict there?
0: Well, that came from an actual veteran. Uh, We work with this organization called MUSA, and we had a veteran come in and talk to us about the VA and the issues with the VA. Norman... At the very beginning said i want to take on the va so we said okay (laughs) let's have some people come in and and educate us about this and so this one uh this one guy came in and he told us this story of trying to get one appointment and how you know if you're working you have i guess your lunch hour to try to make an appointment and he said he was trying to do it for weeks literally weeks so he took time off of work on a friday to make the like i'm gonna make this appointment today i'm gonna do it and he spent hours trying to get through. He kept on getting, you know, a hold, and then it would jump off, and then it would disconnect, and then it would be sent to the wrong person. I mean, he told us this and he was like, you know, you'd think it was a joke. Right. Finally he did get a hold of someone and they said, Well, we you're gonna have to call back on Monday because I have to I have to go catch oh, my, my bus. Goodness. Literally the story that we do in the episode was what happened to him. Yeah. And we actually made the Jolene character who's the who's at the VA kinder than this woman was. Uh, to him. And it was funny because he said, you know, in fact, why don't I call the VA right now with you guys? So he did. And it was I- insane.
1: <laughs> Cause you, and you got to listen firsthand to, first to what it was like. The whole
0: writer's room, we were sitting there and he, he had the phone on on speaker and it was just the what's your number? Who is this? Why? What? Do you, I mean, it was an insane mix of not understanding, not being helpful, not caring. Mm-hmm. And this is just somebody who was trying to get a simple appointment. So you think about, you know, and then the, the, the PSAs that happen throughout as well. Like there really is a PSA that's like, if you're feeling sad and lonely, you know, call this number. And you're like, if somebody is thinking about doing something stupid and they call in, you think they're going to wait for the Do hold? The, yeah, right. I mean, mm. these are people that really need help and need need people who care on the other end of the phone. They, yeah. they're, and they're often not veterans. That's one of the issues. They're not veterans who are de- trying to help these guys make their appointments, women and men. Yeah. So one of, the, uh, one of our writers, Dan Hernandez, who ended up writing the episode with his writing partner uh, said, wouldn't it be cool if we did the whole episode in real time? So this is a 30 this is her trying to really get on the phone with this person and showing what it is So the whole episode happens just in the apartment we never cut away wow. and it's following her over the course of a few hours you right. know we play with time a little bit but it's just really her trying to get this appointment to make the point of how difficult it is
1: Wow when you have that real life experience how does that inform the storytelling and how do you do it in a way that's funny because that's not funny, right?
0: <laughs> no. It's not funny at all. And, and
1: yet you have to find that sort of thing that makes us go, oh, ha-ha, that's funny. Right. But it's not funny. So how do you do that?
0: Well, I think that, I mean, I have sort of gallows humor, as I think a lot of the room does, right. where, you know, in, in tricky spots, humor has gotten us through. Uh, certainly a lot of the, our families, the same thing, you know, to to have dealt with uh, immigrant parents coming here and, and the many, uh, you know, misinformation of what's out there about Latinos and growing up with that. You develop a sense of humor, as have many of our writers. Yeah. You know, we really go to them, too. And so we have... Stories in that episode that are not about the VA thing, so that we can have tension breaking with those moments. But also, we have fun with simple things that this woman does, like eat Cheetos while she's. What do you do while you're waiting? (laughs) Laundry, eating Cheetos, you know, doing your nails, what have you. So we like to show the totality of this person because the other thing that happens with veterans, and I went to this wonderful event called the Vet Fronts uh, that Got Your Six puts on, and they were talking about how there's such there's such misinformation out there about veterans mm. you know they're in the media and in television shows they're either seen as these great heroes or they're seen as you know PTSD they can't leave the house they're shooting up right. buildings and there's the the truth is there's they're really the majority are somewhere in between. Right. They come they return and they become civilians and they live really productive and wonderful lives. They're parents. They're you know members of society that are doing wonderful things. And yeah. so to be able to highlight just your normal person, yeah. a mom, someone who's trying to raise her kids, how important that is for people to see because yeah. it takes the stigma off of them.
1: Right. And and going through life and maybe they're having some issues mm-hmm. but they're finding a way to deal with them or overcome them in some cases or many cases um th- that's like that's real life right um so take me through this particular episode you so norman lear says i want to take on the va yes you guys as part of your research talk to this veteran you see what this veteran goes through and then do you all sit in the writer's room and how does how does it work how does an episode we sit, come together so
0: we have about 12 writers we sit around a conference table and we start talking about what are ways to make this work we have with the norman Lear of it we really feel like we're doing a play in front of an audience mm. so oftentimes we'll break stories like what if this were a play and in a play you could have a proscenium and that's your set right and you, you, and you were in. trained as a playwright i'm, I'm trained yep. as a playwright so yep. i ve- feel very comfortable in this world and then what can happen there to keep it interesting to keep it moving so that it do- it's not just a lock on you know the Her sitting on a couch waiting for a phone call to happen. Mm -hmm. What can we have happen? So we talk about the other characters and what can be going on in their world. That can, you know, this is also an episode where the daughter character, uh, spoiler coming, uh, (laughs) where the daughter character, uh, while she's waiting, is is openly having a conversation with the with the operator with the recorded messages on the VA operator system uh, that she might be gay. That she's thinking about, you know, she's questioning her sexuality. We also have. Uh, you know Lydia and and uh, and Dr. Berkowitz the the mother the grandmother character and the doctor that Penelope works for have a sort of flirtatious moment with with one another so within it we tried to have interesting stories that were moving the other characters forward and then we just we just break it we it's called breaking the story and you write out all the beats and you talk about how we want to incorporate that and we outline it together and then the writers go off and write it
1: you've been a writer on other projects and you've been in the writing room and been the one called on to throw out an idea now you're the the person saying hey john what do you think or however you guys do it and i wonder having been in the writer's position first and now being the showrunner what's the difference and and how does the way you were treated or how, you know, the, the good experiences you had and the bad experiences, how do they come to play for you as a showrunner?
0: Well, I'm very fortunate to be paired with Mike Royce who has run shows before. So I didn't have to go into this blind. I have a partner in there.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: But the best showrunners to me were the ones that had a very clear idea of what they wanted. If you're pitching to someone and they don't know what they want, mm. you could be there for days. Yeah. If they have a clear sense of, I know I want it to look like this, pitch something along this lines
1: you're talking about the The writers yeah yeah
0: so you tell the writers i want to do a story about this i want to keep it in this arena Mm -hmm. then they can pitch to that and if you're very clear about what you like through the course of the season they start to get a sense of your taste okay and what you like and what you don't like
1: and do you and do you listen to every idea or do you kill ideas in the room like someone says what if um she you know had potato instead of uh, Cheetos right. she was eating french fries or you know whatever I mean I don't know what the idea is but are there you ideas
0: lovingly that- try to it, you know if you're like I, uh, I I love the Cheetos thing let's stick with the Cheetos thing <laughs> right like it would be that like I try to say I love that when I love something and if right. I don't I go hmm huh let's think on it for another minute you know I don't like to just dump on someone right. uh if they're because all ideas the worst idea can lead to the best idea. Mm-hmm. Okay. So really, I I don't want a room that's quiet. I want a room that is,
1: because I've
0: been in quiet rooms because people are afraid to talk mm. and you kind of have to formulate it until it's perfect and then say it out loud. Yeah. There's certainly those types of rooms. Mm. I like a room where let's say every dumb idea, because there might be a f- kernel in that dumb idea that gets to a great idea. Yeah. And from the staff writer, you know, our writers are 24 to 94 when Norman's in the room. Right. (laughs) So we have a really great varied group of people. And sometimes the best idea will come from the 24-year-old that we can then go, oh, that's great. Let's polish that a little bit. And now it's this. Right. So I like a a vibrant room.
1: I want to get back to the makeup of that room in a second. And, you know, the 24 to the 94-year-old and what is the demographic and and, uh, ethnic makeup of that room. But... Um, just to continue the thread, the, all these ideas get thrown out and then do you assign a writer and say you yes. write it?
0: Yes, we assign a writer or a team. We have three teams in our room and they get about a week to write the first draft. They send it to to Mike and I, we read it. Sometimes we'll just do a little futzing with it and then it will go back to the room for punch up, for mm. joke punch up mm. typically. Uh, for the most part, we haven't had to re-break any stories. Also, we're fortunate that Sony and Netflix are very... Uh, good to us and they don't, they, they tend to really be supportive of what we put forth. So we don't have to constantly be re-breaking, but that can be something that's been something I've had to do in the past. for sure. So
1: if I'm the writer and I take on that first draft, is there pressure for me to be funny in it or is it just structure? No, it's the whole thing. It's the whole thing. Oh yeah. So you're, you're going to do punch up, but you want that first draft to be pretty, pretty good.
0: We'd like it to be pretty good. If it's like a B, that'd be great. Yeah. Yeah.
1: And do you do you ever, having done it for so long, do you ever look at a script and go, I don't know if this is funny or not? I, I'm, you know, do you know, just well? Instantly? I know what, I know
0: what I think is funny. Yeah. Whether other people are going to mm. laugh or not, that's the question. That's why that studio audience is there. Because I'd say I'm, I don't know, I'm maybe eighty-five percent. You know, right. there's definitely things that they laugh at and I go, really? That? Huh. Huh and then there's other things that i'm like oh this is gonna kill silent crickets (laughs) yeah sure sure of course you just don't know
1: and is it something that even everyone in the room would laugh at but then you put it in front of the audience and they don't think it's funny
0: yes that certainly happens there are things that we weep about in the room because we're laughing so hard and then in front of the audience they're not because you know it's some of it is context yeah and what's happening in the room and what led to that i would say that doesn't happen often but it certainly does happen
1: um the first time you guys rolled out with the first episode. Studio Audience there. You're the showrunner, co-showrunner. You you're proud of the script. You've got Rita Moreno. Yep. You've got all these wonderful actors. And here we go, right? Yes. Tell me what's happening to you as that happens.
0: Well, it's it was so personal. I mean, this is the most personal thing I've ever worked on. So it was different than, gosh, I hope they laugh. Mm. It's, I hope they embrace this family mm. because it's very much my family. Yeah. And I also hope that they are quickly able to see a commonality with these Latino faces. Mm. Uh, because right now I'm delighted to be one of the few Latino shows because we're getting positive feedback. But I would love for there to be many more, mm-hmm. and I would certainly love for us to just be – I think we will have reached real success when people just talk about us as a good family show yeah. as opposed to the Latino family show.
1: Well, let me just share that one of the reviews with, with our <laughs> listeners if they haven't caught these reviews. This is what The Hollywood Reporter says anchored by a tremendous ensemble and a forceful creative team, led by executive producer Norman Lear and showrunners Gloria Calderon-Kellett and Mike Royce, Netflix's One Day at a Time is timely, soulful, consistently funny, and more than anything, blessed with great warmth. You don't write for the reviews. (laughs) You write for the audience. But when you see a review like that, how do you feel
0: oh my gosh well we've been very i mean the reviews have come in very positive and you know i don't know if it's because i'm so broken as a comedy writer (laughs) or or we're so used to you know in in comedy writing rooms one of the funniest you know deadline.com
1: yeah
0: is a is a website that the first time something comes out in deadline you're like oh let's read the comments because it's everyone just dumping like uh one day at a time pass (laughs) Oh, why are they remaking that garbage? You know, so it's sort of this rite of passage, like, oh, let's hear the trolls talk about how right. terrible we are and how much they that, hate. That's yeah, everything. Yeah. So it's sort of this delight. So you're sort of used to that. You're sort of like, this is what comes with it. We're not digging ditches. We're getting to sit in a writer's room where they bring us food and we get to write what we want. Like, we're very blessed. Everyone take right. it easy. Yeah. So to then get this uh, this amazing uh, avalanche of of warm reviews and people that are understanding the thing that we really tried so hard to get right, not just for Latinos or veterans, but LGBTQ and, and young people. And there were so many things we really wanted to get right. So uh, immigration, my gosh, um, Cuban issues. Uh, so we're, it's great. (laughs) It It feels great.
1: (laughs) (laughs) But, and, and you, um, and let me take you back to the soundstage. The, you start to shoot, the audience is laughing the actors are feeling good um and and this is your story and do you do you take that moment to sort of let it all soak in and feel the emotion or are you just too focused on i was
0: tried to be really in it when it was over i went up to nor I was very emotional and i went up to norman and i said thank you mr lear for changing my life and oh. i was crying and he said, oh, this that's is beautiful. this is so classic norman norman's like oh stop Stop it! You would have been. You're very talented. You would have been fine on your own. I'm like, no, you don't. No, this is a big deal. Oh, please! Like he he refuses to take credit. <laughs> oh man, <laughs> because he's so generous. He's yeah. so very generous. But uh, but it's true. It's it's uh it's it's been quite a year.
1: Yeah, and if it is your family story, how does your family feel? About oh well, it? they're at every taping. That's great. They're there every
0: week. My mom and dad are there every week, and they're delighted. I mean, this is. Uh, this is such a, you know, to, to have seen the hard work that they put in over the years to have been a child in that home and yeah. seen, uh, the love that they gave us the, they didn't let us see any of the struggle. And then over the years, you find out as you get older, all the struggle yeah and, uh, and it worked and it well, works. So I'm so, I'm so grateful that they get to experience this with me.
1: Let's share one of the scenes about your family story that, that appears with uh, rita moreno who plays the grandmother yes the legend rita moreno <laughs> um and she talks about her journey to america from cuba and to set the scene she's being interviewed on video by her grandson played by
0: marcel ruiz
1: um who is is he is he valerie bertinelli or is he <laughs>
0: <laughs> well i mean we, we kind of did our own thing <laughs> right you did your own
1: thing in that um but it's a school project i guess about your the family roots uh, Rita Moreno dressed in a flamboyant costume. Uh, and listen as the scene goes from funny to deeply moving. Okay, Abuelita, time for your story. Make me laugh. Make me cry. Get me an A.
0: <laughs> well, when I was in Cuba, the peoples would line up for blocks and blocks just to see me. I
1: was the iPhone of my time. Yeah. Ooh, you know what would be good? Talk about being one of the Pedro Pan kids. Ah, Pedro Pan was a program that started during the revolution to fly children out of Cuba and give them safe haven in the United States until Castro left. Okay, so you were put on a plane to a new country where you didn't know the language? Oh yes. Without your parents? Yes. And you were a Elena's age? which would have made Tia Marucci my age. Yes. That must have been so hard, taking care of your sisters, since you were the oldest.
0: Mommy. Are you okay? Uh, you know, I, I, I'm sorry, I'm a little
1: tired. I'm sorry, papito. I think I am done talking. Hmm? So tell me about that scene.
0: Well, uh, so my parents did come over in 62. Uh, what had happened in Cuba at that time, for, for people that don't know, is that Castro had taken over, and there was this promise. Uh, <laughs> funny. there There was this promise that he was going to, you know, do everything that that people in cuba very much wanted he he was a sign of hope when he f- was first brought to power everyone was very excited about mm-hmm. him and then very quickly it it became not a not a socialist state but a communist state right. and and children were being sent to russia and the catholic schools were shut down and uh, there was I mean, there's so many stories I could I could tell about what my grandparents did manage to tell me before they passed away, but I remember very clearly my grandfather saying that at one point uh, he had said something about negative about Castro, and uh, that night soldiers came in at two in the morning with machine guns. Wow! And said he was a spy for America and uh, was was not for the revolution and uh, stripped you know t- completely took. Thing threw things on the ground and and just scared him. Mm-hmm. And he had heard about Pedro Pan, and it was an organization that the Catholic Church had set up to get kids out while there was all this happening. Um, you know, there were there were executions televised uh, for traitors. Um, you know, my father in my father's village the week after he left. Uh, Matanzas. The the fourteen year old boys were shot in the uh, against the um, oh the gravestones for being traitors. Fourteen year old boys, uh, because they didn't want to join the revolution, and so they they plucked them out, and and the hope was that they would get to go home. They they loved Cuba and they really wanted to return, and of course that didn't get to happen. So, with without knowing any English, they were here in camps in Miami uh and a year later fortunately both of my grandparents just turned over all of their all of their um life's work to the government to mm. the Castro government and got on a plane to join their kids here
1: you know we we sometimes wonder where is all of this anger uh, among uh, Cuban Americans you know we some of them are deeply angry and upset about you know what is happening with Cuba and the fact that there is this opening of diplomatic relations. And and I think when you hear stories like that, it, it makes a little more sense. You understand what families have been through.
0: And families ripped apart. I mean, so many families were ripped apart. The revolution made brother turn against brother, really, yeah. and, and inform on their brother and et cetera. So uh, when they so we we do a story we we have an older sister that was not my mother did not have an older sister that was left behind but the rest of the story is completely true what she experienced coming here and uh and it's nice i think a lot of people don't know about pedro pan so it's also nice to be able to share that story of the cuban immigrant experience and also the cubans are uh you know we're we've been very fortunate in that when we came here my parents worked three jobs and worked very hard but they were allowed to work jobs Mm -hmm. you know they were allowed papers to work yeah and got to become citizens
1: given your family background do you have a view that you would want to share and you don't and don't feel obligated because that's not what this is about but is do you have a sense of because this is really very much happening right now this 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 reaching across uh 90 miles to cuba and you know, some people see the positives, and uh, I mean, clearly, I some think, people are still very upset about it.
0: You know, it. I'm also West Coast Cuban, so mm-hmm. I'm not in Miami, seeing and talking about this all the time. Yeah. So it's not as uh, as ever present for me as I'm sure it is for the Miami community. And I have cousins and and friends there that are so entrenched in that. Mm-hmm. So for for me, I mean, it's very tricky. I'm, I see the other side of it because I live in Los Angeles and I have many Mexican-American friends and see their journey and how difficult it is for them and how difficult it was for their parents and how they couldn't go to school because they don't have social security numbers, et cetera. Yeah. Things that I got to do. Mm-hmm. So I have a lot of my own, uh, you know, I benefited from being wel- my parents being welcome here. Mm-hmm. And to see other people not doesn't seem... Fair. Yeah. You know, why me and not them? Right. So it's, I think it's such a very complicated, complicated thing, and certainly something that I, that I hope we can talk about more on the show.
1: Yeah. Um, we're doing this interview uh, at the Sunset Bronson Studios in Hollywood. Uh, it's where the KTLA studios are, but we're in the shadow of this ginormous <laughs> construction project that's underway. Um, a beautiful multi story building on the corner of Sunset and Van Ness has a big red Netflix sign on it. Um, Netflix is disrupting the TV business, um, uh, along with Amazon and Hulu and, and other streaming services, but Netflix really has been in the vanguard for this. And I and I wonder, for someone who came from network TV, how is it different?
0: Well, you know, my career in network was great, so I don't have a lot of complaints on that front, but I never had to run a show in network television. I've seen it done, I've been in meetings where uh, you know you get the notes Mm -hmm. the dreaded notes that no writer likes getting right so the biggest difference for me having been on the other side and seeing my creator friends and working for for shows is netflix really does does leave us alone Mm. they really do uh trust us to do the shows they have comments and thoughts and things that they would like for us to consider but never is it a strict mandate that those things have to be done Mm -hmm. and i also found that When they did have an issue about something, it was something worth considering and talking about. So as creative partners, my goodness, it was incredible. They were incredible with Mike and I Hmm. and and really allowed us to make the show that we wanted to make.
1: In network TV, you do 22 minutes for a half hour show and there are commercials all over the place no commercials no on netflix commercials. what is how is that different in terms of the pacing of the show and does that is that different
0: yes well you know the biggest thing we don't have any music on our show hmm. uh, unless it's you know in the background or in a bar or something there's no interstitial music which right. i think you need in network television because it kind of lets the audience know okay now it's commercial and we're back right right, right. it kind of is a little to kind yeah, of come yeah. in yeah. and yeah. out yeah. and when you're talking about really serious stuff and you're getting very dramatic, that do 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 can be a little little cheesy. (laughs) And because we get to tell these really as a play, we didn't need to. We didn't need to stop for act breaks or anything like that. The time was the biggest thing. I think when people talk about our show, you know, sitcoms, I mean, the number one show on American television is Big Bang Theory. It mm-hmm. is a multi-camera sitcom. Yeah. So it's not like sitcoms have gone away. Right. What they have uh, though is lost time. Mm. You know, The sitcoms of my youth were 25 minutes. Mm-hmm. The sitcoms of today are about 20. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe 21, but that's really it. Mm. So you lose that time, you lose the opportunity for silences, for sitting in moments. Uh, if there's more breaks, you, you lose the momentum mm-hmm. of certain scenes. So those things have been really nice for mm-hmm. us. Getting to have those moments of silence and and momentum.
1: The other part is as showrunners and actors, uh, the the day after the show, everyone's looking at the, the overnights, right. right, for the ratings. Yes. How did we do? Did people like it? Did they tune away after the first quarter hour or whatever? You don't have that in Netflix, no, right? And don't. so, how, what is the metric? How do you well, we know, don't know if you're doing okay? We
0: don't. We don't. They never share that. They don't. <laughs> they don't. Really?
1: No. Now, is that is that weird?
0: You know, it doesn't bother me huh. because I don't make it for the metrics. I make it so that p- what means a lot to me is the outreach from Twitter and and Facebook and emails and those kinds of things. Mm-hmm. The supplementary articles that people are writing because something was moving to them in the show. Right. So that I hope people are. Wa- I mean. I hope we're not just in this little bubble and that people are watching, yeah. but I have to trust their platform to get it out there right? and hope that they are. Uh, for me, it's really more about the response that we get and, and that we are doing right by the people that we set out to do right by in telling these stories. I see.
1: And just as a viewer... Yeah. Do you like? I have a smart TV now, where I don't have to go and push a box, and and get, it's like on my TV, right? Netflix is just a choice next to Amazon, next to Directv, right. next to the web, right? It's all sort of converging, as you know, people have said it would, and it's finally happening. I wonder, as a viewer yourself, do you watch a lot of TV? Yes, and, yes. and do you immediately go to I Netflix enjoy, now, or how does it? How do you view TV?
0: I enjoy binging as well. In mm-hmm. fact, what I have found is if there is a show for example this is us which i love nbc show this is us Mm. i love it i love it so much that often what i'll do is i'll wait a few weeks until there's three or four right so that i can watch them together through my tivo or whatever dvr whatever whatever the. (laughs) there's a million ways now right right Right. so uh that's that's what i like to do i like to watch it in more i like to watch it as more of a movie yeah you know a couple of episodes at a time and you know that's the other thing about netflix that we we really love is that had someone seen. you know we've been out for two weeks that means people on net on the traditional platform would have seen two episodes right instead of knowing where we're going and knowing where we're building because i really feel like we hit our stride around six or seven Mm. so we might have been canceled before then, right? Right, but people get to view the whole thing together and get to go, oh, I like this show, but I'm not. I'll give it one more, right? right? They right. get to do that, and yeah. then they go, oh, wait, no, I thought that was actually kind of. I'm gonna give it one more, yeah. Oh, they're doing a right, so they, you don't get the benefit of that always, yeah. When you're doing traditional,
1: and do you have to draw them into the next episode, is 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 that? necessary or is each thing self-contained and you're okay if you come a little bit
0: of both it's a little bit of both we definitely have an arc and i think and netflix does like the serialization element because it encourages binging yeah and we so we tried to have each be its own thing but also have elements of it that could uh go into the next episode that might make the viewer want to sit down for more than one
1: um we were talking about the writer's room a second ago and writer's rooms uh on, on sitcoms have been notoriously white and male yes um and and (laughs) i've been in there (laughs) i think that's right and i I think it's changing um i want to know what your view is about diversity in the writer's room what does your writer's room look like uh and and what do you think of what's happening in hollywood uh on that front we're going to take a short break though and we'll get to that in just a second
0: Introducing the completely redesigned Mercedes-Benz E-Class. It's everything you need it to be, and so much more. Frank Buckley Interviews is presented by the Mercedes-Benz dealers of Southern California. Visit mbsocal.com for dealer details.
1: We're back with uh, Gloria Calderon Kellett, and uh, first of all, did I, am I saying Kellett you are, correctly? You are! Okay. You are!
0: It's very rare, so I'm just delighted. <laughs> okay,
1: good. Um, and and uh, you're a woman in Hollywood. Yeah. You're a powerful woman in Hollywood. You're a showrunner.
0: Okay. Um,
1: <laughs> you're running a writer's room, and as I was just saying a moment ago, historically white and male. What does your writer's room look like?
0: We have some of those, too. We like those guys. I like I like those Good. white guys. Yeah, I love those guys. I married one of those guys. Um, no, our room is half Latinx, which is very rare. Uh, so we have, let's see, we have Cuban. Half
1: Latin what? X. What does that mean?
0: Oh, that. <laughs> am I blowing your mind with yeah. terminology?
1: Oh, my God. I don't know Latinx, what that means. So instead
0: of saying Latina or Latino, Latinx just covers everything. Oh, okay. All Every right, experience, gotcha. yes. All right. So Latinx. Uh, we have Q- we have another Cuban. We have Argentinian. We have Puerto Rican. We have Salvadorian, mm-hmm. and half of our room is also female.
1: Mm-hmm. Uh,
0: we also have uh, two of our writers are LGBTQ, mm-hmm. and uh, and we also have white guys.
1: Okay. Yeah. So this yeah. is a, a true sort of Norman Lear. Yeah. Um, proper writers room. Also,
0: the age ranges, right? The twenty four to, to ninety four when Norman's there, and fifty four when he's ninety four. Yeah, he's ninety four. Yeah, you're
1: not joking. I, he's actually not because he he's doesn't. really
0: ninety four. I know. <laughs> wow. Makes you want to take a yoga class, doesn't yeah, it? Absolutely. Yeah. Or yeah. Something. I, I know. start eating right. I know. He has salad every day for breakfast. Okay, Believe well, me, I've been taking notes.
1: <laughs> I'm not doing that. So, but um, but I guess that's the the secret. Um, but when you pulled together your writers room. Based on your experiences of working in that all white room and all male room, um, was it important for you to to make sure this this yes. room reflected our community?
0: Yes. Well, also look for this show specifically, right? I think every show needs to make choices based on what they're writing about. Mm-hmm. This specific show needed a large Latinx component. It just needed to be not just me. Mm-hmm. I needed I needed other people there to support or add. Or or fight with me, right? Because I'm one person and I have one point of view. Right. Fortunately, uh, Norman and mostly my partner Mike Royce was so on board with this, mm. which is everything. Had I come in and said these things and not had the support of Mike, nobody would have paid attention. Mm-hmm. That's really the truth. So I'm so, so. What's also so ironic in this whole thing is this wonderful white guy is the guy who made this really happen. Yeah. Because he said you guys should listen to her, and mm-hmm. they did. Wow! So we read and read and read because it's not exactly an easy thing to find, uh, and we wanted to hire people not just because their last name was Gomez, mm-hmm. but because they were great writers right. that maybe just hadn't had the opportunity to shine in other spaces. Yeah. So we we have such an inc- also our religious backgrounds are so different. We have atheists and agnostics and Catholics and you know people that dabbled with Wicca, mm-hmm. Wiccan I guess, which is like a witchcraft I don't know. Uh but the, we're uh, but to have real conversations and to talk about these things a lot of single mom we a lot of people raised by single moms which was also important. Mm-hmm. Uh and just that room the the conversations that we have are not the ones I've seen in other rooms I have been in. Wow.
1: And is it because of their life experiences that are just different? Yes. And they're not saying, "Hey, what if the character did this?" They can say, "Here is what yeah, here's something
0: life. that happened in my life, or here's how I feel about this. And then it's also great because because our our standard 50-year-old white guy is also very important there. Because mm-hmm. he can say, oh, I, d- I don't know about that, explain that. Mm-hmm. And then we can have a conversation about it. Mm-hmm. So each side represents the audience that we're trying to reach as well. Mm-hmm. How is this conversation interesting to them? We have a lot of Spanish in the show, mm-hmm. and we don't translate it. And the reason we don't translate it is because if somebody laughs in the room because one of us says something in Spanish and everyone laughs, I go, why do you laugh? And they go, because you mean this, right? Yes.
1: That's interesting. And then
0: people can go Google it right afterwards. Which when I was watching TV as a kid, no, there were no television shows made for me, yeah, right? Yeah. I had to look things up. I didn't right. know what a bar mitzvah was. Right. I didn't know. I didn't know until I watched it. And I go, oh, what's that? I'm going to write that down. And then I go to my Encyclopedia Britannica and look it up. Right. And that's how I learned stuff. Right, right. So it's nice to be able to do it the other way around, to have people look up the foods, have people do Google. People are having two screen experiences all the time, I'm told. Right, right, So right. great. They can do some Googling while they're and watching. And do you
1: know right now who your audience is? nope they don't tell you that either nope so you're really you're making a show great stories funny touching and you hope it reaches a broad audience we hope yeah
0: yes and the twitter love has been i mean i don't know if this is also indicative of twitter but it's been a lot of young people Mm. coming out which has been really you know with a family show yeah that's really uh really wonderful
1: as someone who's been doing it for a few years, not you're not an old person, but I, but, but you know you're <laughs> Thank you. somewhere between 24 and the 94 mm-hmm. on the lower end, mm-hmm. but still you've you've had a, have enough experience to be a showrunner and have have worked in the business long enough. Have the writers' rooms have they been changing?
0: They have. I've been fortunate to be in rooms where I was. I mean, I have been the only woman in a room, mm-hmm. but I've also been one of three women or one of four women. I've also been in rooms where there was one other person of color, you know, and which is exciting mm-hmm. because you go, oh, hey, hey you too, right. you know, right, <laughs> because right. it's rare. But then uh, do, you,
1: do you feel the weight when you're that one or two or three people do you feel like i've got to represent
0: at the very beginning and then you ease into it hmm. i think at first i did feel like you you both feel like i have to assimilate and let them know i'm not just right this the you know as a woman that's one thing already it's a room of boys yeah so you want to make sure like they know that i can hang if they're talking about boobs for a long time i mean mm-hmm. no joke
1: yeah no I get you know
0: them. right so it's like they can feel comfortable doing that they don't have to be like oh we can't talk about the stuff we want to talk about because she's here <laughs> so I needed to do that and yeah. then it was how do I just be like neutral so that they so at first it's that assimilate 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 mm. be funny let them know you can hang right then it's, oh, but my unique voice, right? What's my unique voice? How can I bring my personal stories and life to shows, which I have. i mm-hmm. brought to, you know, How I Met Your Mother had a lot of stories about my dating life and my life with my husband. And those are, those are, you know, ethnic neutral stories, I suppose. <laughs> uh, and same with rules of engagement, and same with you know, devious maids. All of those had elements of my personal life that mm. I would throw in.
1: And so, to some young writer out there, or maybe someone in university who's thinking, "I want to to be like Gloria someday." <laughs> um, Sorry, excuse will, me while I
0: laugh. The, I, no, I, 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 guess. it's I, not bad being me. I'm not going to. I,
1: I think a lot of <laughs> I, a lot of people who who write would like to to follow your career path and follow your example. So, to that person, you would say what in terms of the training and what should they do and what is the first step after they've you know feel like they've put in their ten thousand hours of writing without getting paid for it? Right. Um, well, that ten
0: thousand hours is huge because mm. I think a lot of people don't want to commit to that. Mm. I think they come out here and have an expectation. And I think like a doctor, like a lawyer, you have to put in time yeah. before you can do it. Mm-hmm. So the writing, and also I think there's such a um, expectation that the first thing has to be perfect, mm. which it doesn't. No, None of us started out being good writers at first. We wrote terrible, terrible things at first right. and then got better and better. Yeah. So starting that process of writing the first terrible scripts that you're going to look back on and be horrified by but right now you should feel proud of right until you know better and do better yeah and i am largely self-taught i'm a huge uh i'm a huge fan of libraries mm. because now at a library you can get just about anything yeah there's also museums of tv and radio which in los angeles i went to the paley center is where i would watch Television shows because there were no YouTubes and Hulu's and all of that. Now people can go back and watch any television show and study the form. Yeah, I had to do that in a space. I had to go to a special place and look those up.
1: You were self-taught. You didn't yeah. have. Uh, you didn't go to some fancy film school and have. Nope. Wow. No,
0: no, I went to I went to Loyola Marymount here in Los Angeles, and I got a d- degree in communications because I was going to be a lawyer. <laughs> and then I I stumbled upon a theater class and fell in love with that. And I started writing plays because I I just thought it was interesting to write oh. personal stories. Right. And then I went to grad school and I got a, a master's in performance and playwriting from University of London. Uh. But the master's programs in London are about the study of plays. I didn't actually write any plays. Mm. I got to read a ton of plays, which was wildly beneficial for mm. this job in particular, mm-hmm. because we like to play with form and this is largely a filmed play. Yeah. Uh, and then I came back and I was a playwright. So. I, no television course was, I was never in a film school or anything like that.
1: So to this young person, you would say, you don't have to go to film school. No. If you didn't get into SC, don't worry that's about okay. it.
0: Yeah, that's okay. Make but, stuff.
1: But teach, but, but learn, but you, learn,
0: read, yeah. read and write and put it out there in some way. I would mm-hmm. put plays up in Hollywood. I put stuff up at the Hudson here in Hollywood mm-hmm. with no set and just people talking. And that's how I, that's how everything happened for me. Yeah. And I think nowadays people can shoot things on their phone And put it on YouTube. There is no excuse not to try and fail at first, dare to suck a little bit, and then get better.
1: And for those people who come out, and I I suspect that some of these writers, they write something, they're very proud of it, and there's that moment where some person who maybe he or she is a writer right now, and they look at it and go, you know, this is crap. And they give up. They just stop. You would say what to them?
0: You can't give up. You can't. You have to, well, listen, You have to. there has to be some voice inside of you that is saying, I'm good at this. No matter how dark and self-hating comedy writers are, there is still a part of us that thinks we're geniuses, right? Mm-hmm. And you have to listen to that voice more than you have to listen to the other voice that is definitely in there. Right. That's like, this is terrible. No one thinks you're funny. Go home. Right, right. Hide under the covers. You can't listen to that one. And if, you know, I remember there was a teacher uh, that came to Loyola once and he was talking about acting, but he said... Of, of the hundred of you here, maybe one of you is going to make it. Mm. So I remember thinking in my head, well, it's going to be me. Right. 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 And he goes, and if one of you just thought it's going to be you, then don't quit. Your, then don't quit. Wow. But if you think, oh, I'm not sure, then quit. There's other wonderful jobs you can have, but you need to love this and you need to put in the time. You have to, because yeah. even now, even writers I know are like, oh, what should I do? I'm like, what are your samples? Well, I wrote this thing two years ago. And that's what I'm like, you wrote it? What? You got to be, I write something new every year. Mm -hmm. Even now, even Mm -hmm. still, I just wrote something new.
1: And this is uh, ordered by someone or you just spec'd something? Spec it. Wow.
0: You just write and write and write and write and write and write and write. Because you have to, because you have to keep telling your stories. And it also gives your agents or people that are interested in you proof that you are a commodity. You are something that they can continue to sell because you're prolific in creating material. Mm. They need to see that. So to write one script and go well, I wrote this one thing and it's great. Who cares? Yeah, you got to write fifty of those, right? And, and you keep know, going. and keep going. I have so much on my computer that no one will ever see. That is just for me to keep my muscle going, and hopefully, I'm getting better.
1: Yeah, yeah. yeah. Apparently, you are. You're running <laughs> a show now, and, and let me ask you one more question. And I, I'm almost reluctant to ask this because I, I think it comes across as a little sexist, but I'm going oh, to a- ask anyway. Um, and that is, as a woman who is a showrunner, and you mentioned that you're married. I don't know, do you have kids? I do, I have two kids. You have two kids. Uh-huh. So I feel like we always sort of judge women differently. Yes, it's right? true. It's, it, and women do it, men do it. Yes. Is she being a proper mother? Is she? Can she do it all? Can she be, you know, first of all, is it an unfair question? And tell, be honest and tell me if it is. And then two, how do you do it? All as, well, as here's, a woman.
0: here's the thing. I do think it's a, an unfair question, but I understand why people ask the question. Mm. I get it. I do get it because it's really hard. It's really, really hard to do it. Uh, I have a lot of help. I am Latina. I have my family. Mm -hmm. My mother was a working mom and my grandmother is who picked me up from school and who I got the privilege of hanging out with every day. And my mother swore when I had kids she was going to do the same and she did. Both Mm -hmm. my parents moved here. They live a mile away. They pick up my kids from school and they're with my kids and feed them until I get home.
1: That's awesome.
0: So if I didn't have that... And know that they're also, my kids are also getting to have this amazing relationship with their grandparents and nourish that and have old people in their life. I feel like we don't have enough old people in our lives anymore. We've sort of discarded our old people. Uh, I'm so happy my kids have that relationship with them and grateful to my parents for for giving me this and i also have an incredibly supportive spouse Mm -hmm. my husband is a cartoonist and an artist in his own right and he works from our home which gives flexibility as well to you know he can take the kids to doctor's appointments if my parents can't make it uh so i have a village that makes it possible right for me to do this if i didn't have that village i don't my kids are my number one priority so that's where my that's where this it would go. But I would certainly have a hole in my heart not being able to pursue everything that I love and certainly the the things that I want to say yeah. as a mother and as a woman that is often represented misrepresented in the media. So the fact that I get to do both is an incredible blessing and I'm very, very fortunate.
1: Well, your other child is one day at a time and they're all <laughs> thriving. So I just want to say, uh, Gloria Calderon Kellett, Um, It's really been a pleasure. I really enjoyed the conversation. And and thank you so much for the time. And I, I do wish you all the best.
0: Thank you so much.
1: Hope you enjoyed the conversation. Please share it with your friends or tell them about it on social media. We're called Frank Buckley Interviews. And on social media, I'm Frank Buckley TV on Twitter and Instagram and Frank Buckley on Facebook. As always, we'll have some extra content for you on our podcast page. You can find that at ktla.com slash Frank Buckley Interviews or ktla.com slash podcasts. And thanks for the nice emails. If you want to drop us a line, our email address is frankbuckleyinterviews at ktla.com. Thanks for listening. We drop a new podcast every Wednesday. Until next time, I'll see you on TV. Frank
0: Buckley Interviews is presented by the Mercedes-Benz Dealers of Southern California. Visit mbsocal.com for dealer details.